Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35, and this is page 1090 in your Pew Bibles. My name is Scott Simmons. I'm a pastor here, but I'm not one of the pastors here, if that makes sense. I'm not a pastor of the church. I'm just a ha- happen to be a pastor in the church. Here now the reading of God's word. <clears throat> and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male shall uh, who, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was, was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that... Thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This ends the reading of God's word. I don't know if you still have your Christmas tree up. This is about the time when I normally take my Christmas tree down, but my daughter is in Israel right now. She's at the University of Haifa studying a semester abroad. She left in September, and I haven't seen her since then. And uh, so we still have some Christmas presents underneath our tree waiting for her uh, when she returns. So our Christmas tree is still up and will still be up for another week or so And uh, uh, as we count the days until my daughter returns. But as I look at Christmas trees, and maybe you've noticed this too, there are actually a couple types of Christmas trees that are out there. Some are absolutely pristine and beautiful. They are sometimes artificial trees, but even if they're uh, real trees, they're well-trimmed, and the ornaments that are put on these trees are, you know, they're color-coordinated, and they're fragile, and they're perfect and pretty, and they're made to look beautiful. Everything kind of works together to make a pretty picture. It's a very uh, ornamental kind of style of uh, decorating a tree. Uh, That's not us. That's not... That's not the kind of tree we have, and uh, it's a great way to decorate a tree, but that's, that's just not what we do. It's not the way we did our tree when I was growing up. When I was little, we had a tree that we would get a tree every year, and my, uh, my aunt had made a, an angel 
out of a ball of yarn and paper. It looked awful, uh, but it was my parents' first ornament. My, my aunt made it for my parents before I was born. They put it on the top of the tree because they couldn't afford anything else. And that was what was on the top of our Christmas tree for me growing up as long as I can remember. And it didn't look odd or strange to me at all. That's the way that Christmas trees are supposed to be. You stick a ball of yarn and put some paper on it and call it an angel and you stick it on the top of your tree. That's what we did. And and for us, you know, uh, in our own family growing up uh, with my kids, um, we have ornaments that are, well, they're just, you know, products of the family. We have ornaments that our children made and they bring home and of various different kinds of quality and they go on our tree because our kids made them. We have tree or ornaments that are pictures of my kids. We have a, a picture of my daughter in a uh, snowman that uh, is on our tree. We have a picture of my son with Santa uh, on a on a stocking that's on our tree. This is there. There's gifts that we've received over the years, and they don't match each other. They don't necessarily look great together, but that's not really the point. They are on our tree because uh, they tell stories. They tell stories about our life, and so when we put the tree up and we hang ornaments, uh, when we're not fighting about who gets to put what ornament where, we are telling the stories that go along with these ornaments. We're retelling them in a way that allows us to kind of relive our family's history. And that's really one of the more beautiful moments of the Christmas season for me uh, is putting up the tree because we retell the stories. It's part of what uh, binds us together as a family. Uh, the ornaments are symbols. They, they tell the story of our lives. They tell the story of our family. They commemorate the stories of our lives. And that's really the power of symbols in our lives. They, they are just things we do. The rituals that we perform every holiday season, they're not necessarily empty of meaning. They, they actually have meaning in and of themselves. They bring unity. They bring tradition. They bring things that have meaning in and of themselves to uh, to the Christmas season, uh, and uh, they ornament our season and allow us to retell the story of our lives. And so, this is a story that that really hinges on two of these kinds of symbols in in, in Israel's history. Um, the symbols that were to be reenacted with the birth of a child. So, in in Leviticus chapter twelve. Uh, Joseph and Mary were required to offer um, a sacrifice for Mary because she would be unclean after giving birth. And 33 days after, uh, she would have to offer a lamb. But Mary was poor. Her family was poor, so she wouldn't have been able to afford a lamb. So the text says that she uh, was using the part of Leviticus 12 that gave her the opportunity to come with two doves or two pigeons. And so that's one symbol, one ritual that she would have performed after, after giving birth to her son. But because Jesus was the firstborn son, she also needed to consecrate Jesus to the temple. And this is Exodus chapter 13. Uh, and this was part of the story of Egypt. Uh, Mary and Joseph were to consecrate their son, but this was not just an empty ritual that they would perform because the law required them to do so. It was actually an opportunity for them to retell the story of God's great redemption of Israel from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, when their firstborn son would be 
uh, with the firstborn son of everyone in Israel and everyone in Egypt would be uh, taken except for the blood of the lamb that we put on the door and the spirit would pass over those homes with the blood of the lamb on the door, sparing the child's life. And so this was a, a memory. This was a ritual that would remember, would cause them to remind them of the great story of redemption, of Israel's redemption from from Egypt. But these were also signs that would give them perspective on their current situation. They would remind them of the ways in which their current lives were not really all that dissimilar from their uh, their history in Egypt when they were in slavery, because now again, Israel was under control of a foreign power. Israel was under the rule or the rule of the Roman authorities, and they had set up a puppet tyrant to rule in Israel by the name of Herod. And Herod was an Idumean. And uh, if you don't know, Idumean is really just the word they used at the time for an Edomite in the Old Testament. And the Edomites were the children of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, it says of Jacob and Esau, while, she, while they were both in Rebekah's womb, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And here we have an Edomite now reigning over the Israelites. Every pious and devout Jew would see this as an insult against their heritage and against the promises that God had given Israel uh, through Isaac and Rebekah. Edom was supposed to serve Israel. Jacob was supposed to rule over Esau, but now Esau was, or Israel was being governed by an Edomite. And to make matters worse, Herod was a tyrant, not too dissimilar from Pharaoh. At the time, this is in Matthew, and this is sometime within the two years after Jesus was born, probably after this story in Luke took place. But at some point in the first two years of Jesus' life, uh, Herod decided to commit a holocaust in the region of Bethlehem. He had heard that Jesus was born, and he had heard that Jesus was a threat to his reign, and so he decided to get rid of the threat. He would just kill every male child under two years old. A holocaust in the region of Bethlehem, simply so that Herod could preserve his reign. This was the kind of king he was. He was a tyrant. And when Mary and Joseph entered into the temple, they were reminded of another fact, that here this Edomite and this tyrant was one who had actually restored and, re- and, and upgraded the temple. So even the temple itself was a symbol of the impact of foreign control over God's people. And so as Mary and Joseph entered in the temple courts, they see a stranger, Simeon, a man who is both righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit had told him he wouldn't, he wouldn't die before seeing the Messiah. And he was waiting for what the text calls the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for Israel to be comforted, for light to be given into their darkness, so that Israel could be freed from the shackles of Rome, so that Israel could no longer be ruled by an Idumean, but reigned, but ruled by a son of David. This was the hope that Simeon had. This was the hope that Joseph and Mary had. It was actually the hope that all believers throughout Jerusalem and Judea would have had 
for the nation of Israel. And so Simeon sees Joseph and Mary coming into the temple and he goes to them and he takes Jesus from her arms. Now, this is strange. I mean, they don't necessarily even know each other. I mean, imagine coming into church with a newborn child and somebody comes and grabs your child from you and starts to pray for him. You would think this was odd, but this is what happens. Simeon sees Jesus and he sees the salvation of Israel in a little baby. And he can't help himself. And he goes over to him. And he holds this baby in his arms. And he prays, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of your people, Israel. And I'm struck as I read this, that Simeon was longing more than anything else for the redemption of Israel and yet was content just to see the Messiah as a baby when he was capable of doing nothing more than giggle in his mother's arms. He didn't need to see the end of the story. He didn't need to see the redemption of Israel come about in history. Just seeing him was enough to say, okay, now, Lord, you can take me. I have seen the Messiah. And Jesus didn't look like a king. I mean, he was a peasant. His parents couldn't afford a lamb. They had to use two turtle doves or two pigeons. But Simeon looks at this child, a peasant child, and sees his Lord and sees his king and realizes that he can now die in peace because a new future has come. A new light has dawned. And the only way he could have made that conclusion from seeing Jesus other than by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, is by realizing that Jesus came for a different kind of kingdom. Jesus didn't come like Pharaoh. Jesus didn't come like Caesar. And he didn't come like Herod. He didn't come in majesty. He came as a peasant child who had no place to lay his head. He was not a majestic king like Caesar or Herod. But Simeon recognized in Jesus a sign that was greater than the both of them. He recognized in Jesus a sign that was greater than the rituals that Mary and Joseph had come to perform in the temple. In fact, greater than the temple itself. In Jesus was the rising and falling of many in Israel. In Jesus was a sign that reveals our hearts. And so he doesn't just give us the light to see in the darkness. He also reveals the darkness in us, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that we might see the darkness that we're in, that we might be redeemed, and that we might be forgiven. But we have to see the darkness that we're in in order for us to see the light and be forgiven. I remember years ago when I was still in Maryland, I had a cavity. I went to the dentist 
uh, and the dentist told me I have a cavity. And now uh, the way things are today, you know, it used to be when you had a cavity, the dentist told you you have a cavity, and they filled it, and you went on your way. They told you to floss. They told you to brush. But now they have technology, and they can show you a picture of this cavity, and I don't want to see that picture. But they show it to you, they make you look at it, they hold your eyes open, and they make you look at that cavity, and they make you see why it is you need to brush and why it is you need to floss, uh, because your, your teeth aren't fine, and you need to take care, better care of your teeth, and I don't want to look at that picture. I didn't want to see it. Just tell me to floss, fix it, and let me believe my teeth are okay. And that's, that's just the way I approach so many things in life. I just want to believe everything's okay. Just tell me what to do. Everything's okay. And that picture made me look at the brokenness of my teeth, made me look at the, the fact that my teeth really aren't fine, no matter what I want to believe about them. And, and I have news for you. Uh, the world around you, it isn't fine. There is darkness all around us. If you don't believe me, just watch the news. Any day, pick a day. There's darkness all around us. But the darkness isn't just out there committed by other people. The darkness is also in here. The darkness is in us. The darkness is in our hearts. And we need the redemption that Jesus provides as much as anything out there. And God is not a God who just sits up in heaven and looks down at us in our sin and our misery. He is a God who became man. And dwelt among us. He entered into the darkness of our lives. He entered into our world to redeem us from darkness, from brokenness, and from our sin and from our shame. And that's one of the blessings of the incarnation. One of the blessings of Jesus' incarnation is that he gives us a sign that reveals our hearts to let us see our darkness but in so doing also sheds light so that we can enter into a kingdom. And it's a different kind of kingdom. It's not the kingdom of Herod, and it's not the kingdom of Caesar. The glory of Christ's kingdom is much bigger than that. It's the kingdom of a peasant child, born to a family too poor to provide a lamb. It's a kingdom that is upside down, where the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God could have come with armies, with heavenly armies, and wiped out his enemies and set up Israel to be the kingdom over all others, but he didn't do that. He sent his son to be incarnate, to live in weakness, to live in our misery, to fully obey the law, to die a sinner's death, and to rise Again from the dead. And nothing that he did in his life on earth was lived to benefit himself. Every single moment of Jesus' life was to benefit those who believe in him. In direct contradiction to the reigns of Pharaoh, I'm sorry, of, of Caesar and Herod. And this is the light that Jesus brings to us in the gospel. The light of an upside down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And the greatest will serve even the least of these. This is the hope that made Simeon say, okay, I can die now because I've seen him. Because this is a different kind of kingdom where light shines in the darkness, where power is disrupted by a little baby 
who's starting a different kind of kingdom, who transforms our hearts, who ushers us into a kingdom of a Lord who loves us more than life itself. Because the church is the kingdom of God on earth. It's an upside-down kingdom, but it's the church is the kingdom of God on earth, the community of people that Jesus has brought into his upside-down kingdom. God became man, and he lives among us to bring light into our darkness, to bring consolation and peace into our lives, in our sin and our brokenness. And in in so doing, he's going to turn our lives upside down as well. It may not be pleasant, but he's going to turn our lives upside down. And this is what we see in the prophecy that Jesus gives and the blessing that he gives in uh, in verses 34 and 35, when he he says, uh, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, as a sword will pierce your own soul as well, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. There was really nothing about Jesus' ministry, as it's foretold in this passage, that was pleasant. There was really nothing about his ministry that was about his own creaturely comforts. Throughout his entire ministry, he would be opposed by the Jewish establishment. He would be opposed by those who um, couldn't understand his message. Those who rejected him would fall. Those who received him would rise again. And he was a sign that would be opposed by the political and religious establishment. People would counter in Jesus and he would reveal their hopes and their, uh, in their hearts, and they, uh, the hopes that they harbored would be revealed. And even Mary would be pierced by seeing his own suffering and death on a cross. Jesus was opposed because many in his day put their hopes in alternate paths for the salvation of Israel. The Pharisees thought that the temple would compromise, or thought that by putting hope in the temple and compromise with the Roman authorities, would ensure their safety in Israel. The Pharisees thought that through their legalistic devotion to the law, uh, they would win God's favor and God would redeem Israel because of their faithfulness. The zealots thought that through the power of the sword, they could find a king from the son of David and overthrow Rome and bring about a messianic kingdom. And so when they heard Jesus' message, they had one response. We have our temple. We don't need you. We have the law. We don't need you. We have the sword. We don't need you. But there were many in Israel that said, we have nothing. And so we need you. Those that thought they had something rejected him. But those who by God's grace realized that they had nothing accepted him. And we have nothing, which is why we're here. Because we have everything in him. And Simeon looked in the face of Jesus and saw the salvation of Israel. And not just Israel, but Gentiles as well, who would receive the light of revelation. And that's us. That's you and I. Saved together with the people of Israel, Jew and Gentile together, saved by the Jewish Messiah, who lived in our misery, bore our sin, and rose again from the dead. He is the light that shines in our darkness, and turns us upside down. Seven years ago, I think it was seven years ago, we put up our Christmas tree just like we normally do. 
We, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was putting up the tree, and I put it in its tree stand, and it was just a little bit off. I didn't notice it was a little bit off, but it was a little bit off. And we tightened the screws, and they should have been a little bit tighter. And we set up the tree, and we did our ritual. We put the ornaments on the tree. We did the things that we normally do every Christmas, and we did, and then we go on to eat or whatever we're doing. Hours later, there's a crash in our living room. And as I walk back in there, there's pine needles everywhere. The tree is down. The water that was in the stand is all over the floor. Ornaments are broken. The tree is now kind of crushed on one side. And our living room is a mess with pine needles everywhere. Our tree is broken. And at that time in our lives, our family was going through really the darkest time of our life. There are things that our family was going through that are too severe for me even to share here. And as I witnessed that, I remember thinking, that's my family. That my family has fallen. My family is broken. And this is my family. Broken on the floor of my living room. But we did what, the only thing we could do. We took that tree and we stood it up. And we put it in the stand straight and we tightened up the screws more and we turned the broken side of the tree towards the wall and the ornaments that weren't broken we put back up on the tree and we cleaned up the mess, we cleaned up the water off of our wood-like substance floor and we had a Christmas tree again. And, it, and, it, and if you didn't know about the ornaments that had broken, you wouldn't probably have thought it looked much different. But it, it really was. Because this tree wasn't falling. This tree was stable. It was strong. And it was going to stand in a way that it couldn't before. And I didn't know it at the time. But that was true of our family, too. That God was doing something wonderful. In the midst of our family, he was standing us back up. And we were going to stand and we were going to be strong. And that, that tree really did symbolize our family. And our, that tree wasn't the same. And our family wasn't the same. We got turned upside down. And our family will never be the same. But it's better because we can see the grace of God. Because now, even in the pain, as we think about those times, even the pain of it all is an ornament to God's grace that we can retell in our family about how God is great, about God, how God can redeem and how he can turn our lives upside down. And sometimes that's painful. But it's good because our lives are better now than they would have been before. I think I can honestly say that I wouldn't have the story of our family any other way because God is greater in it. Our lives tell a better story 
because of what we went through as a family. And I have good news for you all. You're not fine. There is darkness in you and around you. There is brokenness. I know this because you're human and you live in the same world that I do. And that there is light in your darkness. I know this because you have a king who loves you more than life itself. And maybe your tree has fallen. And maybe it's not standing again yet. But your story isn't over. There's grace. That your kingdom, that you're a part of this upside-down kingdom, can turn your life upside-down too and bring healing and renewal and peace. And you have a family here at UPC that can love you through it, whatever it may be. I know this because I had a family here when I went through it. There's no need to hide. There are safe people here that will love you through whatever you might be going through. And so let me ask you a question. What does darkness look like in your life? Where is your tree broken? And how can Jesus Christ be the light that brings light into that darkness? To turn your life upside down, as painful as that process might be, so that you can see the grace of God in the midst of it. Because the end product of the gospel is an end to suffering. Not just forgiveness. It's an end to suffering. To live with him in a new heavens and a new earth. And that future doesn't come without a cost. And Jesus loved us enough to pay it. And so it is true what Paul said of Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Because this is our king, not Caesar, not Herod, a peasant child born to a peasant family who turns this world upside down and our lives as well, that we might become rich in Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for men like Simeon who wouldn't stop by the bounds of propriety to uh, not hold someone else's child in his own arms. We thank you that he prayed this prayer that allowed us to see the hope that you've given your people Israel through, through Jesus Christ and all Gentiles who believe in the Jewish Messiah. 
that in him, in your son, Jesus Christ, we have salvation. In him, we have light in our darkness. In him, we have one who reveal our hearts, who will love us more than life itself and rise again that we might walk in newness of life. For it's in the Son of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.